Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Binge Sesh, a new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. They're talking about Winning Time, the HBO special series, and awesome at that, and just renewed for a second season about the Magic Era, Magic Johnson Era, that is, Lakers. The Los Angeles Lakers in all their glory. You want to hear the real story? Well, join LA Times TV editor Matt Brennan and professional basketball player Kareem Maddox, and you'll hear from actors, TV writers, professors, experts from the Times themselves, people who were there, and the real story behind winning time and the Lakers of the Magic Johnson era. Listen to it now. It's Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, wherever you get podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get them. Give a listen now. And now here's our show coming up. The major league owners were thrilled about the control they had gained over salaries by means of innovations like the reserve clause and the blacklist. But the players were increasingly disgruntled, leading a series of challengers to step forward. The Union Association debuted in 1884, and both components of that name signaled its intentions. The word association placed it squarely in the tradition of decentralized predecessors, like the National Association, while the term union was, if anything, more provocative. Workers' unions of the era were extremely polarizing entities, with the loyalty they evoked in many working men equaled in intensity by the hostility that many Americans felt toward them. Writer H.L. Mencken liked to tell how his father hated unions so much that while working in Baltimore in the 1890s, he positively refused to enter a saloon near his office that was called the Union Bar. As Mencken recalled, the proprietor of that saloon was named Ruth, who later became the father of none other than George Herman Babe Ruth. With the very word union eliciting such strong feelings, the Union Association's name made clear its allegiance to the working man, a stance that led it to reject the reserve clause and make aggressive efforts to sign players under contract to teams in the established major leagues. Unfortunately, only St. Louis owner Henry Lucas had the financial means to afford the salaries of established stars creating a competitive imbalance that ruined the Union Association's first pennant race. It never had a chance to rectify that problem, folding after a single season. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, what is going on, everybody? It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. Thanks for coming by. And you know by now, this is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for finding us, as always. And uh, we hope to amaze and delight you today with a, uh, we're going to go back, way back, probably to the earliest, not necessarily the earliest years of baseball, but pretty darn close to it, uh, for a topic that uh, it's been years since we've been uh, focused on our uh, last time, and frankly, the first time we ever talked about it was way back in the summer of 2018 with our pal John Springer when we talked about uh, a a team uh, truly asterisked uh, into the annals of history called the Wilmington Quick Steps, uh, which lasted not even a full season. They were actually a mid-season replacement, and they didn't even last that. 
once they were in the league, of what was known as the Union Association. What year was that, you ask? Well, I'm glad you did. It's 1884. And it is a source of contention still today in um, uh, baseball historian circles about whether the Union Association, uh, which lasted one season, and we'll get into just how by bare threads that one season was with our guest this week, Justin McKinney, who's got a great new book out available for pre-order at uh, goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 264 with Justin uh, McKinney, and you will see it uh, in the uh, description of, our, of this episode. The book is called Baseball's Union Association, the short, strange life of a 19th century major league. Now, major league, again, I think depending on who you talk to in Sabre circles or in the halls of Cooperstown uh, or just amongst your friends who actually, you know, think that they know that there was baseball prior to, I don't know, the 1950s. The Union Association is still to this day a controversial topic as to whether it was a professionally top tier major league. Now, I think by official standards, uh, the majority of historians will say, yes, indeed, it was. And the statistics are part of the annals of baseball history and lore. But as you'll hear in our conversation with uh, with Justin in just a few moments, uh, this thing called the Union Association certainly had its issues uh, and it certainly had its distinctions. Um, the clip at the beginning uh, is well worth uh, finding. And for longtime listeners of the show, you may remember one of our sponsors uh, back in the day was something called The Great Courses. And one of those, and it's a great service, you subscribe and you can, you know, just, it's all you can eat and all kinds of great topics and stuff. And sports and sports history uh, is uh, well represented. Um, what you heard there at the beginning of this little, uh, uh, this little episode uh, was a guy named Bruce Markison, who is um, an historian uh, affiliated with, and uh, I think full-time employee of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, and he's got a great series uh, at the great courses, uh, called play ball, the rise of America's pastime. And it's a lecture series. Uh, it's got some, uh, imagery and, and, uh, uh, clips and stuff, but it has also, um, it's, it's very, um, uh, it's educational. It's almost like a college course, but it's very accessible. Uh, and, and it's it, it undeniably intriguing. Uh, and the episode that we pulled that clip from is called baseball's many leagues and associations. And as you'd find out by listening to that series, and particularly that episode, uh, Bruce Markison will tell you that uh, during the 1880s, 1890s, even even to the, the turn of the decade, excuse me, turn of the century, uh, baseball had basically evolved from fits and starts uh, from the earliest days of professionalism and in itself a controversial topic because professionals in baseball was, you know, not necessarily seen as a noble thing is actually thought about perhaps as maybe, maybe going to be bringing disrepute to the pure uh, and fledgling game of baseball, which was thriving on the, on the amateur level, but God, you know, bringing money and, and all the kind of ills that money might bring into the, to the sport, uh, professionalism and paying people to play a game. egads. <laughs> which is actually something they might have said in 1884, but I digress. Um, but, but Bruce Markison goes into sort of uh, basically a, a sort of an era, I guess, of baseball's very early 
professional history where the National League, which was founded in 1876, and a number of sort of other, I guess you call them challengers, like the American Association, even the National Association that preceded the National League. Um, you know, there was a difference, actually. The words mattered, right? And the, the idea of a league centralized uh, with, um, uh, uh, you know, rules that sort of bound people, a, a schedule that was sort of uh, uh, solid and and uh, affixed to all the teams and associations, right? A name that's a little less restrictive, uh, more of a sort of an alliance, I guess, or a, a, a you know, a looser affiliation of teams, uh, maybe a little less stricture, uh, maybe a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, individualism, I guess, by the teams. So these words and these names actually mattered as to what these uh, organizations were. And the Union Association, um, as we'll find out in our conversation coming up, uh, really was a true one-year wonder uh, that was at the time, in 1884, the third of the now professional league circuit. That that now the umbrella then called organized baseball, something that the American Association and the National League had kind of sort of gentlemanly agreed to, I guess is an odd way of saying it, uh, to kind of just uh, uh, it coexist. But then this union association, and again, the words union and association very much matter because as we'll hear, and by the way, not for the first time and nor the last time in baseball's history, and frankly, pro sports's history, the idea of unions and players and their desires and their leverage uh, into this whole budding enterprise known as professional baseball kind of mattered. And the, and the players were not necessarily at that time and frankly for decades and decades afterwards uh, hardly enamored, shall we say, with where the owners were taking the game and how they were being treated, the players. Uh, the, the idea of collective bargaining, not, not nowhere near in sight. This thing called a reserve clause. Like you, were, you were an indentured servant to a team. And if you wanted to be traded, well, good luck because owners aren't going to do it, um, yeah, let alone the playing conditions and, and pay and all that kind of stuff. So the Union Association, very much an early progenitor of a lot of these issues that you could argue today still have yet to be solved and are very contentious and not unlike recent times, uh, can threaten the start of or even literally interrupt or perhaps even uh, totally disrupt uh, actual seasons of play. Um, it's something that is not new to this generation, nor the generation prior, but two or three generations prior. Uh, and that's why we love to just delve into these leagues and, and, and discussions and topics because everything old is new again. And, and that while the union association of 1884, the one year wonder in pro baseball's history may seem like an ancient artifact, but it is as timely as today's headlines. And you're going to hear a lot of themes that you thought are relatively new constructs, but you will be amazed to know that they are not. And that's our conversation this week with Justin McKinney, our guest. Uh, he, again, the author of the brand new book available for pre-order called Baseball's Union Association. And look, if you uh, consider yourself a fan of the Altoona Mountain Cities, perhaps the Baltimore Monumentals, maybe you remember the Cincinnati Outlaw Reds, there are perhaps the Philadelphia Keystones, the aforementioned Wilmington Quick Steps, or maybe the one and only champion of the Union Association, the legacy, the leg legendary and legacy, St. Louis Maroons. This is the episode for you. Coming right up in just a few moments' time. 
All right, quick sponsor note. Uh, let's stick with baseball. Now, I, I don't think our friends at Ebbetsfield Flannels have any uh, historical uh uh, remembrances or clothing items from the Union Association of 1884. Um, so that said, however, let's just, you know, celebrate baseball. And that's where Ebbets Field of Flannels kind of got its start. And tremendous, authentic, highest quality fabrics, uh, painstakingly made uh, photographic evidence uh, and, and uh, meticulously crafted. Um, yes, flannels, but jackets and hats and all kinds of great stuff with history very much in the foreground of everything uh, that you will find at Ebbets Field Flannels. The website, of course, is Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S dot com. And uh, they're in Seattle. We love them. You will, too. If you've never discovered them, you'll uh, lose a lot of time uh, and perhaps a bit of money uh, when you find some just great stuff. Uh, to commemorate some of uh, baseball and, frankly, pro sports. There's some great NHL historical stuff in there, uh, some basketball uh, stuff in there. Um, Lord knows there. I mean, some great uh, NFL vintage crew neck sweatshirts. Um, if you want some authentic uh, MLB or NFL jackets, um, there's a great collection of, of North American Soccer League, uh, real old-time uh, jackets and um uh, and, and, and the like ball caps and some jerseys in there, colleges and stuff are represented. Uh, uh, you know, if you, if, if you, you want to celebrate the, uh, uh, the, I think it's the 1954, uh, Southwest conference champion TCU horned frogs baseball team. There's just a wonderful frogs, uh, baseball Jersey. there, all authentically created handcrafted. And I will tell you, this stuff will last you a lifetime. It's that well-made. Ebbets Field Flannels, the place to go, established in 1988, but going way further back in terms of its memories and its uh, its great stuff. Ebbets.com, E-B-B-E-T-S.com. And yes, a promo code. Save 10%, why don't you, when you go there uh, by using the promo code GOODSEATS10. GOODSEATS and the number 10, that's the promo code at Ebbets.com. Again, E-B-B-E-T-S, two Bs, one T. Dot com and it's Ebbets Field Flannels. We thank them for their continued patronage of our show. And of course, we thank you for continuing to listen as you do always. Uh, this is a fun one. So please sit back and enjoy and learn as I did in our conversation on the night. Let's let's turn the let, we're, we're just going to the way back machine way, way back 1884. And we're going to talk about the one year wonder union association. Here's our chat we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. You know, I'm not a saber guy, right? I'm not a sports historian either, you know, officially or unofficially and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I would call myself at best maybe armchair just simply because of this exercise of of interviewing people either directly or indirectly and in all our little exploits of across, you know, professionalism and sports. But um, why why does saber intrigue one and in particular you? Uh, what is it about either the sport? Uh, the activity of chronicling the sport. Uh, what do, what uh, what drives the interest in uh, in some respects from an outsider's perspective? I'd say like why even bother talking about stuff from the 1800s? And I mean, is it is it just a futile and maybe like Latin language kind of a dying sort of practice? 
I, I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, it's it's debatable with all that's going on in the world today, how much value, you know, a, a book on the Union Association will bring to the world and, and that sort of thing. Um, so that's something I honestly question on occasion. But uh, yeah, my, my interest in, in sports and, and particularly just the history of sport has always kind of fascinated me. And, and for whatever reason, despite the fact that I grew up in Canada, I was always very drawn to baseball at a very young age and um and then drawn to the history of baseball at a very young age and, and just really fascinated by old photographs of like ty cobb and she was joe jackson and folks like that and then so always was reading baseball books growing up i i remember every year when i was a teenager i'd, I'd take the the bill james uh historical baseball abstract out of the library and i'd read it like cover to cover kind of every summer and just just loved baseball history and, and kind of obsessed about it and then, yeah, and then, you know, my, my personal professional career, I, I did grad school, I went to library school and, and worked as an archivist and things like that, and have always just been fascinated by history and documentation and, and information and that, and baseball was rife with, with all of those kind of things. And so, yeah, it just kind of led to that um, and just, I don't know, it just I just have this real fascination with uncovering the past, accumulating information, you know, I, I, I have a real struggle with writing just because I find that the hardest part of, uh, of, of this whole. Oh, you, you wouldn't be the first. Uh, yeah, for sure. yeah, and, yeah. And, and I'm sure, you know, people like you and your background and stuff, you get sort of, it's very easy to fall down the rabbit holes once oh, you discover yeah. new pieces of information. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I love it. I can spend hours and just be hyper-focused on just digging up the smallest kernel of information. And, and uh, I love doing that. And it's it's almost like you get into a flow state and it's just incredibly exciting when you do discover something. I've had moments of real epiphanies. Like I remember one time finding an image of a, of a player in, a, in, in the Montreal Gazette when I was at the library and, you know, had spent, you know, many, many hours trying to find this image and then found it in like, and just almost broke down in tears, just being so excited that I found this this little bit of information of just some obscure player who played, you know, one or two games in 1924, and I just being so excited. And you know, those kind of moments are just like that's kind of what I live for, and that's why I love doing this sort of stuff. And but I ultimately do want to like be able to share stuff with the world and contribute to kind of the conversation, so to speak. And so making a book on the subject sort of seemed like the best path to compile some of this information, maybe tell a bit of a different story about the Union Association than what is typically kind of gets told. Yeah, look, and I think sometimes in, in these kinds of projects, when you think you kind of know what you're trying to pursue, you recognize perhaps uh, various cul-de-sacs along the way, like uh, just, just the, the enormity or you pull a thread and then you realize that there's a whole nother sweater or rack of clothing that now needs to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, investigated and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I'm sure there are plenty of times when you go, geez, what have I sort of done to myself in all of this? And, um, but, but I, baseball is, is, is probably most uniquely interesting. And if any, I've learned anything in the last four and a half years of, of doing this, uh, uh, silly little show is, uh, you know, it, it perhaps is the, perhaps by virtue of its, longevity, right? It's arguably the first, you know, real professional uh, sport in, at least in the United States' history. Um, uh, and there's uh, some, some twin uniquenesses, I guess, to them, right? Uh, to it. One is what you just described, right? The data, statistics, uh, the minutia of such, right? I mean, maybe by virtue of, of its length of existence, uh, or for perhaps maybe just the, um, 
foresight or luck uh, or combination thereof of people uh, in the earliest days uh, putting data and scores and information to paper or whatever form of media there was, right? So the documentation is a long trail of that st <clears throat> stuff, right? The the other though, which is, is pretty interesting and I'm assuming floats in your head when you're pursuing this, putting to paper, thematically putting it together, writing it is, and again, I don't know if this is history or, 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 or whatever, because it's lasted longer than any, is the, let's call it the maybe fictional distraction or uh, uh, possibilities, I guess, of um, the stories, right? And, and the, I don't know, the human and uh, psyche uh, and, and conceptual uh, logic, I guess, of, of trying to put some stories around these meat and bones, right? Uh, uh, some of this data and statistics, right? Which can be very dry and very just, you know, plain. Um, you, one, the mind wanders, right? I'm sure in the process of, of investigating as well as writing as to what was going through their heads at this time, right? And the, the romance writing, if you will, of baseball, probably more pronounced than any other sport um, on the planet, right? Uh, just go to any library or, or bookstore and just see baseball versus all the other sports, right? It's literally like that. It's baseball and then there's all the other sports, maybe golf. Um, but to me, those that, that intersection of data, statistics, information, scores, stats, et cetera, plus, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the bones, if you will, the, the the foundation for what are probably great stories that either can be further, uh, uh, you know, investigated or frankly aren't and, you know, require some, shall we say, creative thinking to kind of maybe piece some of these uh, data points together. Yeah, I think, I think that's very much true. And I think one of the fascinating things with the Union Association is sort of unlike a lot of other leagues and histories, there wasn't really anyone who was um, there to tell that story who like sort of could advocate for it, so to speak, you know, like something like uh, the Players League has, it fits really nicely in with kind of history of baseball and labor. And you had some really key prominent figures who, you know, were able to continue to show its legacy. And, and with, with the Union Association, there wasn't, necessarily that like it was kind of it existed for this one year it was generally deemed a failure there's a couple of folks um like al spink who was obviously very influential um in st louis and as, as sort of the founder of the sporting news who sort of picked up with the mantle a little bit and and advocated and, and discussed the legacy of the st louis uh the maroons or the st louis unions um, I'll get into that a bit later about the naming of the teams and why a lot of what we see um, online and, and on baseball reference and things like that isn't correct. But um, he he sort of would talk a bit about the the legacy of this this great club and the Union Association um, and told a little bit of the story in his book, The National Game in 1911. But outside of folks like him, um, there wasn't really people saying the Union Association is worth remembering. It was just kind of they look at the standings and then every you know decade or so someone would write a little blurb about how the club had the best winning percentage in all baseball and, and all baseball history and that sort of thing and so there really wasn't people who advocated for it and in recent years the, the discussion about the association has primarily focused on its legitimacy as a major league and whether that's like something that is is should be a good standing and bill james wrote a really really um compelling essay about it in um 
is is more abstract about you know just why the union station isn't a major league and that's sort of where the discussion sort of stops it's like you got fred dunlap his incredible season the league isn't very good lasted a year is it a major league and that's the, the, the bonus of discussion and then maybe you go a bit deeper you talk about henry lucas and his involvement with the league and his fascinating kind of story but yeah, there, there just wasn't the same sort of level of scrutiny paid to the league or to try and understand its context or a lot of the key figures involved in the league just kind of were forgotten because they it's almost as if they almost want to forget the league when when they were alive because they they just didn't tell stories about the league they didn't talk about what it meant why it existed what happened and so it just kind of just faded into history and so it only existed as sort of um you know, just like these brief little asides about, you know, the, the one club that was really good in the league and, and you know, the, the attempts to wreck the wreck major league baseball. But they, uh, yeah, there wasn't the same level of romanticism paid towards the league. And so it was interesting to try and tell that story in, in such a way to try and give it life, bring it to life and, and talk about it more, about more than just those sort of key points and just bring it to a fuller picture and try and flush out also like, sort of each aspect of the league and each team in the league and just tell those stories and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, look, it, it seems logical that the that that uh, the desire to perhaps keep some of this story alive does emanate out of St. Louis because the St. Louis Maroons uh, were the uh, champion of this one year. Um, maybe before we sort of dig into that, though, can you give our audience and, and assume that they know very little about sort of the intricacies of baseball at this time? Obviously, you know, in the 1880s, as 1884 in particular, specifically the one year of the, the Union Association's life, right? This is still around the time when the sport was really kind of just getting its sea legs professionally, right? The, it, we've, we've talked a lot about sort of, you know, the early days of how professionalism occurred and uh, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, I don't know. It wasn't necessarily even a noble pursuit still uh, in this game. Ruffians and and drunkards and all that kind of stuff, which arguably adds to some of the spice of the story. Um, But why was the So what was this union association about? Uh, Clearly, it was a challenger of some sort to whatever the status quo was in, quote unquote, professional baseball at the time. Like, what are some of the reasons for its uh, founding in the first place? Yeah, definitely. It's it's sort of an interesting kind of story, and it's and it's very much like a story about timing because um, what had happened in 1882 is is the American Association had formed kind of as a Western focused alternative to the National League. Uh, they were very different in a lot of ways in which way they ran. They they picked markets that the National League wasn't representing. They sold cheaper tickets. They sold beer games. Uh, they also signed a lot of the players who had been kind of excommunicated by the National League for, you know, poor personal habits or having the gall to <laughs> to ask for a raise or ask to be paid money they were owed and things like that. Um, so that had started up, and so eighteen eighty two was very much a season of tension um, between the National League and the American Association. And in the off season of eighteen eighty two, there was all these. Um, signings back and forth where the teams in each league were kind of poaching players from each other. And this the reserve rule has already been in place by the National League to keep players in, in um, under contract. And so we could, I believe by 1882, it was up to 11 players. Um, so you would have those players kind of in perpetuity. You could just renew the contract site quietly and they had very little mobility, but the American Association 
was not expecting that. And, and so as well, in the winter of 1882, there's this real tension and all these players are signing back and forth. And it's a, it's an untenable situation for both leagues because it basically makes um, the stability of, of both leagues kind of in flux and, and challenged. And so in February, 1883, there's a, a conference between the American Association, the National League, and the Northwestern League, which is sort of the top league outside of the two established kind of major leagues in the world. And so those three leagues agree to what was called the tripartite agreement. And so heading into the 1883 season, all three leagues have signed this agreement that they will work not necessarily collaboratively, but they won't, uh, they'll respect the reserve rule for each club and players won't be fair game. And it's a design to sort of keep players' um, salaries in check and sort of hold up the stability of uh, each league. And so that's what happens. HA3 is a really dynamic year. The American Association has this incredible pennant race. Philadelphia and St. Louis break baseball attendance records um, in the American Association. And essentially, by the end of the year, there's, you know, sort of, um, I guess, like peace in baseball, so to speak. Uh, and so any of the strife that between the two initial leagues is kind of over. HA3 sort of, it's basically what happens in sort of September-ish, you have some moguls and magnates who are outside of this established uh, circuit who, who, sort of come up with this scheme to, to form a new league. And interestingly enough, Henry Lucas is not really involved in these initial discussions. Um, they were started by a guy named Al Pratt, who was involved with the formation of the Pittsburgh franchise, the American Association. Um, and in sort of late August, 1883, there's these rumors that he's gonna start a new league that's gonna form, it's not gonna respect the reserve clause, they're gonna like be a challenger to these, you know, to the tripartite agreement and, and that sort of thing. And so, from there, you sort of have different figures get involved. There's another key figure, Albert H. Henderson, who uh, in June of 1883 had formed an independent club in Chicago called the Chicago Unions. Uh, and his goal was to join the American Association. But when the, the applications rebuffed, he also joins up with this new league. And so in September, I believe it's September 11th of September 12th, 1883, the Union Association forms has this meeting, you know, where they're announcing that this league is going to form, they're going to uh, have all these uh, teams in various cities, including Pittsburgh and uh, New York City and all sorts of stuff, and they're basically going to not respect the reserve rule, which means they're going to actively pursue players who are under the reserve rule in the, the American Association, National League, and the Northwestern League. So, so the back up for a second. So, eighteen eighty three, right? We're talking about uh, putting it in perspective, right? I mean, the National League, which was the first professional. Well, I, okay, I want to get into that, but it had been around for about ten years or so, right? It was kind of the the, if you will, professional game in town as baseball was professionalizing itself, right? In eighteen eighty two, you've got this American Association, which essentially is a full on major and or challenger league to yeah. that. So. But now you're talking about the creation, literally, of a third one. What, what's driving even the interest in the third one? You would think that these two, especially given the fits and starts and, and seemingly uh, calm uh, with coexistence now of these two, would be plenty difficult enough, given the sport itself was only a pro game for 10 years, 
why a third and what, what were, what was the third league thinking would be different, better, et cetera. Well, it, it's interesting because what ends up happening with the third league is it um, the initial owners sort of all people who have been sort of shut out of this, uh, of the, the establishment. So Al Pratt was managing the Pittsburgh Alleghenies in 1883 and he's quietly let go from his job. He's, you know, and then he's working as an umpire in the minor leagues and then decides he's going to start this new league. And he'd been involved with the formation of the club. Um, and Albert H. Henderson had been rejected for the American Association. And then soon um, Henry Lucas kind of joins in in sort of September, October. Uh, along with Ted Sullivan, who Ted Sullivan had managed the St. Louis Brown Stockings and been let go by Chris Bondre, um after they had a heated argument in the middle of a pennant race in 1883. And so he also is kind of looking to, to get back at the, the people who've kicked him out. And then soon Cincinnati joins, and that's with Justice Lerner, who had also been one of the founders of the Cincinnati Red Stockings in 1882 and had previously also owned a team in the National League in 1880 in Cincinnati. And he had been kicked out uh, of the National League for, for a variety of reasons, including you know wanting to sell alcoholic games and things like that. And in 1882, he had um, helped organize the club. They won the pennant. They made much more money than they were expecting. And then he was ousted from the club um, because, you know, he, he tried to get uh, his fair share of uh, financial rewards uh, for, for helping to start and found the club and that sort of thing. And so he's looking at it as revenge as well. He's, he's been kicked out of two major leagues. He's now joining forces with this new league. And so a lot of the people who were initially involved were, were essentially people who had a, an axe to grind uh, with, with the established baseball. And so this was like sort of the path to do so. Aside from that, is there any other theme or, or thread that, that bonds these guys together, aside from the fact that they've been essentially shut out by the quote unquote establishment? And again, it's curious to me because I could see that being the case if there was like only one league, right? And, and a, a, a monopoly, if you will. But I don't know, the American Association, you would argue there would be at least, there's some change in the, a, the AA was doing some different things too versus what the National League was about. But um, I, I'm just curious, I mean, were these all, if you will, outcasts? Were they, uh, you know, all, uh, were, were they uh, were they either individually and uniquely kind of shut out from these situations or were they kind of all, did they share similar, I don't know, illegalities to them or, or, or rough uh, personality edges or that kind of stuff? I'm just trying to get a sense of like what, yeah. how these guys even, you know, uh, what's their common theme, so to speak, in, in doing this? You know, I can, I'm trying to imagine what the room is when they first meet each other, you know, like what the dynamic is. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's sort of, it's hard to identify sort of a, a solid motive other than it seems like the real, there was a real belief um, that the reserve clause was an obstacle uh, and would, if they could find a way to ignore the reserve clause able to pay money to players to join their league that that would create a sort of a sense of freedom for players also improve the quality of the play i i tend to think a bit more cynically that they, they weren't so much concerned with like the morality of the reserve clause so much as just this was the path to sign players it's, and and did i'm sorry did they did they feel that the players were not being served well and did, did they have a, a raft of players that felt that even with two leagues now their interests weren't being well served because of this reserve clause and 
their seeming inability to kind of manage their own careers, so to speak. Well, it, it's interesting because they're sort of as this league starts to take take shape as sort of in, in the fall of 1883, there isn't really like the sense I get is that players aren't necessarily clamoring to to join a new league. The, the reserve rule isn't quite as potent as it would be eventually. Um, and so it's essentially just there's a group of businessmen who are interested in having baseball teams. There's not really any other path to joining the National League and the American Association. And so then they sort of group together to form, you know, this, this union association with the intent that they're going to see play in AK4. And basically, yeah, their, their main goal is just we're not going to respect those overall, but I think it's just more a sense of just be pragmatic. This is the way to assign players is that if we can offer the money, entice them to break the contracts with existing teams, then we have a path to put forward good baseball, get the best players. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's sort of the sense I get, but it's not, it's, it's less, less of a sense of players. Like, I don't know. It, it's interesting to think of because a lot of it just has to do with this timing thing is that a lot of the markets that would have been open, you know, are now kind of filled with teams. And one of the responses of the American Association in response to the Union Association kind of announcing the formation is they expand by four teams heading into 1884 season. And so uh, it's, it's just, it's closed off even more markets for the Union Association. Um, well, so let's talk about those markets then, right? So we, yeah. we mentioned St. Louis, um, uh, obviously the Wilmington uh, quick steps from our episode uh, number 73 with uh, our pal John Springer uh, for various reasons. Interesting. We can get into some of those clubs as we sort of go along here, but, uh, I, what I, one looks at the roster of teams, uh, assembled for this union association. Um, number one, not all of them made it. Uh, some of them came in the middle of the season, right? So there's a lot of sort of, uh, craziness and, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, not all of them lasted as long, but I noticed kind of a, um, I don't think it's even a motley, uh, assemblage, but, um, it seems to me that most of these teams, um, are domiciled in markets that uh, already have a franchise in one, or in some cases, even both of these uh, still new leagues, the National League and the American Association. Um, there are a few that are outside of that. Wilmington, I think, was one of those. Um, but I guess the, this is this is a thematic that goes back, uh, that goes into in, uh, the entirety of the show. Um I'm wondering why the markets uh, were uh, selected, chosen for this union association had mostly an overlap or or were competitive to teams, uh, in some cases, two teams already in those markets versus, say, being in in newer markets, which would be more untilled and or opportunistic uh, scenarios. Yeah, I I think the the challenge that the league sort of faced sort of in its formation was that um, there wasn't a lot of open markets left that were sort of also conducive to train travel. And so that was a big issue for the National League and, and the American Association is you want to find markets, but you also want to make it sure that we can travel over by train with sort of reasonable um, reasonable time frame, but also in without inducing too much in terms of cost. And so at that point, the furthest west a team is in St. Louis. And you generally sort of these tried to sort of find a balance of having east and west. And so when the when the Union Association forms, it's a really key component that they want to have four eastern teams and four western teams. And so they start this sort of up until sort of 
February, they have six teams sort of set uh, to join the league. You have Washington, you have Cincinnati, Philadelphia, uh, and uh, sorry, Cincinnati, Washington, St. Louis, uh, Philadelphia, and uh, Chicago and Baltimore. And essentially the key thing that all of those teams have is they have owners who are willing to put money in to invest in this league. Uh, Albert Henderson is who owns the Chicago franchise, also owns the Baltimore franchise. Um, but you have six teams and there's sort of a belief that six teams is not conducive to making a, a league because the scheduling will just be too complicated. It's too difficult to pull off road trips. The American Association found this 1882 with a six team league that it just was too difficult to make an even and balanced schedule. And so there's a real sense we need four teams in the East, four teams in the West. And so in February, they induced Altoona to enjoy, and they had formed as a minor league organization in 1883. We're going to see play in 1884 in a low-level minor league. But when that league sort of goes under, they enticed to join uh, to join the Union Association. And, and the issue there is that it's a tiny market. It's only about 16,000 people. Uh, but but Altoona, belief, but Altoona is a very big uh, train terminus, and exactly, uh, and that uh, was that was the big appeal was it would basically teams going east to west would have this sort of nice sort of hub that they could uh, stop by, play the games, then sort of go uh, go back east, go west, whatever the whatever the case may be, and so that gives you seven teams heading into March. So season. The, the Union Association had scheduled play to start play on April 17th, which, which to date was the earliest kind of a te- uh, regular season had started. It was a full few weeks ahead of both the American Association and National League. Um, but as of mid-March, they only had the seven teams, and that's when Boston is uh, enticed to join. And, and they're under the, the management of George Wright, who is basically, at that point, probably the most respected figure in baseball as, as sort of the legendary shortstop for the Cincinnati Red Stockings and just... Uh, later with the Boston Red Sockings and kind of this really respected figure. And so getting him involved in this Boston venture was sort of seen as a real coup because he's a legitimate, respected person. And and in the Boston papers, like they 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 were very reverent of him and they give a lot of respect to the Boston Union franchise just because of his kind of like his demeanor and his you know well-earned reputation. And so um so that gives you eight teams sort of handing the league. So the key was just that they needed people who would join and then sort of Altoona, Boston, or sort of last minute additions just because they wanted to have an eight team league while also maintaining that east west balance. All right. So the Altoona Mountain Cities, the Baltimore Monumentals, and some of these change obviously over time Boston Reds, Chicago Browns, Cincinnati Outlaw Reds, best name ever, yes. Philadelphia Keystones, St. Louis Maroons, and Washington Nationals, also a Curious name given the history of Washington's baseball. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll interject there just to say that um, in my research that most of those names are actually apocryphal in the sense that they were never used contemporarily. Interesting. Uh, so when you see the Outlaw Reds or the Boston Reds, like those names were not used at the time. Almost all of the teams in the league were referred to as by the Boston Union, Cincinnati Union, St. Louis Unions, um, the Washington Nationals. Not like the Federal League uh, years later, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Feds and the, and so, uh, so I may not to jump in, but I, I'm, I'm suspecting that the, the uh, apocryphal and maybe then by extension historical, uh, uh, you know, uh, nomenclature was probably aided and abetted by whatever uh, sports writers were covering the teams at the time. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And so essentially the Philadelphia Keystones, that was actually the name of the club, the Washington Nationals, that was actually the name of the club. 
Um, the St. Louis, St. Louis is most commonly referred to as unions, but one of the local papers called them the Maroons as well. And so that was sort of like a informal name, but all the other clubs were basically Chicago Union Baseball Club, Baltimore Union Baseball Club and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, when you see the names nowadays, like they're just wholly inaccurate based on at least contemporary records that I've been able to find. I've not been able to find the source for the majority of these kind of names, like even even the name like the Pittsburgh Stogies, I think the the, the Stogie only became associated with Pittsburgh in the 1890s or something. And so it, it wouldn't even have been anywhere near relevant in 1884. Yeah, but the library science part of you, right, it recognizes that there has to be some level. I mean, you got to there's a sort of virtual folder, so to speak, right, for these. Yeah. Right. Because and, and they could have lots of different names, uh, colloquial or otherwise. All right. Well, let me talk. Let's talk about St. Louis, though, for a second, because um, obviously Henry Lucas is is rightly or wrongly sort of circled as kind of the, I don't know, lead change agent for this the existence of this union association. So tell me if that's correct. And then if not, why not? And uh, why his name is so strongly associated with this, not only the union association overall, but the St. Louis franchise for reasons we'll talk about in a, in a few moments uh, specifically as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so he was, he was very much like, yeah, he, like, he wasn't necessarily involved with the initial formation of the league, but he soon becomes the driving force behind virtually every aspect of the league. Um, he sort of St. Louis officially joins in October at the second Union Association meeting, and he sort of at that point starts appearing in the papers. His name starts um, abounding, and there's rumors that he's trying to sign players uh, from from established clubs. There had been to give some background on Lucas. He in 1883 he was a I think 25 year old. Um, heir, millionaire heir of a railroad magnate um, who, in St. Louis uh, that was one of the most wealthy families in, in the city and in the state. And so he was, you know, in, in 1883 dollars, he, he had $2 million to his name. And uh, yeah, essentially he, had, he was one of, I think, nine brothers or nine siblings. One of his older brothers, John Lucas, John B.C. Lucas II, I believe, he had actually been one of the instigators and sort of the development of baseball in St. Louis and had uh, was one of the owners of the National Association franchise and the National National League franchise for St. Louis in 1876-1877 but they were never able to achieve any financial success Uh, and so there's this sort of the sense that um, baseball professional baseball in St. Louis was kind of a failure in the 1870s and then what happens is Chris Vondre he so it figures a way to make it profitable and the American Association forms up. And so the sense I've always gotten from Lucas is that much of his motivation was sort of almost a sort of forward to avenge his, his brother's uh, kind of uh, failures in the baseball world. And then also the sense that um, the Lucas family was sort of like, even though they were French ancestry, they were established St. Louis, you know, privileged class, wealthy class. And Chris Vondra was very much an outsider. He was an immigrant. He was a saloon owner. He wasn't sort of the uncouth kind of stereotype and that sort of thing. And, and the fact that he was able to have success where, his, where the Lucas family had failed, I think that really irked uh, Lucas. And so he sort of makes it his goal to try and get a team, a major league team. Um, initially, those rumors he had applied to join the National League as a franchise, uh, sort of eighteen eighty three, And then in late 1883, those rumors that he's 
one of the people trying to uh, buy the Cleveland uh, franchise and the National League and with the intention of moving it to St. Louis. And so all, of, all this is going on sort of as the Union Association is folding and he's he sort of sees this as a path forward to like bring baseball to, to St. Louis, bring his brand of baseball to St. Louis and maybe redeem sort of some of the, the challenges that his, uh, his older brother had kind of faced and, and not been able to do. So, uh, okay, but the, the Browns, right, and the American Association were were around at this time, right, and doing pretty well. Yeah, the, yeah, HA three they had set, I think, a, a, I think along with Philadelphia Athletics, they had set like the attendance record for baseball. So they would they drew well over a hundred thousand fans, which was phenomenal for eighteen eighty three, um, and so they were very successful. So there was. So, there, so I'm I'm trying to figure out. So is he kind of just uh, jealous, maybe, of that success, that, and especially given his brother? That's the sense I've got. Yeah, exactly. Is that it's tied together? Is that he's sort of jealous of that success? So then, um, then, then, then the follow up question to that would be: Okay, well, you know, now obviously I'm I'm using a modern day lens on this, which is dangerous, right? But yeah. you'd think, given given his uh, well off inherited background, he's exactly the kind of guy that they would want to have in in one of these two existing leagues because he's got some dough and can probably, you know, bring some stability and franchise goodness to, to one or both of these leagues, but doesn't sound like, I mean, again, maybe it's, it was his brother. That's, I don't know. It just seems to me like, why would you want to turn away a guy with that kind of, uh, that kind of deep pockets? Well, the thing that's, that's challenging HA3 is with this new piece between the national league and the association is there's sort of, um, they had to work out these special agreements because Philadelphia and New York would, each um, joined the National League in 1883. And then uh, Philadelphia already had an American Association team. And then New York uh, Metropolitans also joined in 1883, the American Association. So there was this agreement between the two leagues that that would be allowed to coexist. But I think that goodwill wasn't necessarily going to spread to every single market. So not every owner was going to be willing to, to let in a rival league. So with the agreement between the two leagues, there was like less best opportunity for uh, another person to come in and form a team in an existing city that, that already had a club. And so that was, I think, what kept Lucas out of the National League uh, and HA3, even though he was, yeah, financially would have been able to support a team. And so that's a big part of the motivation for him getting involved with the Union Association and pumping so much money into it. Um, so he formed his, only, formed his own team with St. Louis, but he also is involved financially with um, many of the other teams in the league as well. What's this? Binge sesh. Binge, binge sesh. Hey, all of a sudden, I'm Buddy Hackett. Binge sesh. It's a great podcast. For sure it is. It's the uh, def- uh, brand new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. Again, it's called Binge Sesh. Thank you, buddy. But that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and why should you listen to it? Well, hey, did you listen to our episode with Jeff Perlman back in the day? We talked about the USFL. Well, as you know, Jeff is a uh, prolific sports uh, nonfiction writer. And his book, Winning Time, was the impetus and the uh, inspiration for this wildly successful and controversial at that HBO series winning time about the magic era Showtime Los Angeles Lakers, the team that changed America and the NBA for sure. Uh, And Binge Sesh from the Los Angeles Times uh, is the place to, it's a companion, I would say, uh, to uh, to the great series. Uh, if you want to really hear the inside story and the real uh, origins and the real uh, people behind 
the Skyhooks and the Slam Dunks and the Jerry Bus Empire and the uh, L.A. Forum and uh, all that was going on in that period of time. Magic himself, all the various stars and and uh, ancillary cast of characters. Um, it's about the basketball, but it's about so much more than just that. You'll hear from actors and TV writers, professors, experts from the LA Times, people who were there, and it's a fun romp. And it's hosted, co-hosted actually, by the LA Times' TV editor, Matt Brennan, and professional basketball player, Kareem Maddox. You may remember him from his collegiate days as a star standout at Princeton, and a current member, I think still, of the US uh, national three by three team. Uh, which is now an Olympic sport too. Give it a listen. Again, it's called Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, Binge Sesh, uh, from the LA Times. You can find it uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a hoot. You'll enjoy it. And um, we appreciate their sponsorship of our show. And now back to it and our conversation. So, okay, so how does he then, I guess I can see the financial reasons, but how does he then become not only the beacon of of, uh, of challenge from St. Louis with a new team in this new fledgling league to being essentially, I don't want to call it drafted, but it seems like, how does he become the face of the league itself then? Well, I think he becomes, a, he himself is a sort of, a, seems to have a bit of an outlandish personality and seems to love the press. And so he's actively kind of, quoting the press and sort of in November 1883 is when stuff starts to heat up in terms of um, rumors of players jumping ship to join the join the Union Association uh, from the established leagues and he's at the center of that and so it's rumors that he starts being called millionaire Lucas in the papers and um, and there's, there's rumors that he's flashing these huge wads of cash to established players to try and induce them to sign and so he eventually becomes the league president um, as well. He gets voted in, uh, in thick November as, as the league president. And so he sort of becomes like the, the, the main identifier for the league in the media, as well as, you know, just through his sort of outlandish kind of personality. Um, and with, with, you know, with his ample wealth, it's sort of that, that just makes a good story. And he becomes this sort of, yeah, just out, outspoken, provocative figure who the media latches onto and, and really gets a lot of attention to. All right. And nobody's OK. So clearly, again, modern day lenses, uh, nobody sort of sees a conflict of interest in, in all of this. Although, I mean, I think it's it's important to, to point out uh, other owners were also part of the, shall we call it, the league infrastructure, the league office. Right. Uh, you had uh, uh, Pratt from the Philadelphia team and I think Warren White of uh, uh, of the Washington uh, national franchise were, were part of the, the thing too. But I, I, my sense is that those are more, they all sort of, uh, I would say bowed reverentially, but they, uh, they probably were nothing by comparison to the guy essentially associated with essentially overseeing the league. But, you know, um, what could go wrong with the guy running the league also running the, the one team in St. Louis? Um, yeah. It sounds like it's uh, ripe for, um, I don't know, uh, favoritism. And I, I guess if you look at the statistics at the end of the season, uh, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, well, there's very much like one of the things that ends up happening is there's all these different approaches that teams take to building the, the clubs because uh, I think it's Washington Nationals had been a semi-pro club in 1883 and, and used much of the roster in 1884 when they joined the Union Association. But most of the other clubs are signing players whoever is available. Um, so 
for example, Albert Henderson, who runs Chicago and, and Baltimore, he basically raids a couple of the, net, the Northwestern League clubs and gets almost all of his roster from those like Peoria and Springfield in the Northwestern League. And he poaches all those guys. So those, those players are generally minor league players, but in the highest level minor league. But, you know, it's essentially like he's trying to keep his costs down while also having a pretty good roster of players to draw from. Uh, Altoona basically only has one major league player on the roster with major league experience. His name's Jack Lurie, and he was a talented player, but had basically been suspended almost every season of his career for alcohol abuse. And he was just uh, on kind of a downswing of his career because he had run out of chances. And so they, they're going to start the season with one major league player who's a washout, and then everyone else is strictly minor league players. And then you have, in contrast, you have uh, of Henry Lucas, who's actively trying to sign players for expensive salaries. And so the first big guy he gets is Fred Dunlap, who he signs for a salary of um, estimated about 3,500, which would be one of the highest salaries in baseball in 1884. And so essentially you have all these different teams competing, but taking different approaches to roster construction. Uh, in Philadelphia and the Keystones, they, they have this strange habit of uh, recruiting players who were good in sort of the early 1870s. So they, they signed four or five players who were star players in the National Association, but who hadn't played professional baseball in like five years. And so it's like an interesting, and that sort of the tension that exists is there's not a cohesive decision by the league um, that everyone's going to approach things the same way. Everyone's either going to try and keep the costs low or we're going to spread the costs around so that every team can kind of be stocked up, which is the tactic. I, I mean, I mean, like later leagues we take is they'd split up the players so that each team sort of had a, a sort of more competitive balance. But in this case, every team's kind of doing its own thing and figuring out its own way to fill, fuel the team. And, well, look, um, and here, here's a theme that that uh, predates uh, all of pro sports in this country, right? Is sort of the how much do you centralize the league and or yeah, even to a point so. where it's, you, you know, centrally owned to the point of having be franchised and somewhat corralled by hopefully uh, some rationality. And it seems like it was neither of those things. Well, tell me about, uh, so I, I think this is probably a good time to talk about at least one of the players here. Uh, Cause I think it probably encapsulates and maybe it's just a good uh, uh, metaphor maybe for this league uh, is the aforementioned Fred sure shot Dunlap, perhaps one of the best uh, nicknames of the era. Um, this is a guy you're mentioning is um He's not in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but but if you look at his statistics and uh, especially with the Union Association, uh, if you consider it a major league, a controversial topic, which we'll probably end with in, 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 a, in a few minutes, um, the, I, I, I guess he was a pretty dominant figure both of the time before entering the Union Association. And I guess... Uh, this is my naive outsider's perspective. If if there's any guy you could kind of just circle around as like being, I don't know, the most valuable player perhaps of the Union Association in oh, his yeah, life, yeah. it's probably yeah. this guy, Fred Shoreshot Dunlap. Um, why was why was he pursued? He, he was obviously quite the thing at the time for somebody like um, you know the the Maroons and Henry Lucas to pursue. It seems. Yeah. So so essentially like. By 1883, um, he's one of the best players in baseball. If you look at statistics, you look at um, he's a wonderful defensive second baseman. He's a very good hitter. I think he hit 346 in 1883. Um, so he's essentially one of the top position players in baseball. Plus, he's, I think he's 24 years old at that point in, in time. And the thing about Cleveland is 
they were in this interesting position where at the end of the I'm season, sorry, that Cleveland, what, for our audience, Cleveland, oh, Cleveland and, and, and The Cleveland Blues in, in the National League. National League, yeah. they, they had almost won the pennants, um, and, but ended the season with a lot of dissension um, because they had kind of slowly collapsed down the stretch. Fred Dunlap, uh, by all accounts, was not an easy figure to get along with. Um, he was, uh, he, he was, basically offended as a young a young man in, in Philadelphia and grew up illiterate and was a tough hard scrabble ball player, but very intelligent, but just very tough and, and feisty. And so he got in a big brawl with uh, uh, some teammates sort of at the end of the season. And the Cleveland franchise itself was sort of in flux because they were losing money. There was no guarantee they'd have a ballpark in 1884. And so that's one of the reasons Lucas had kind of sought out Cleveland potentially to buy them. But then also that becomes the reason why he targets Dunlap is because he knows that the team is in disarray. Dunlap's a great star player. Um, and basically he, he recruits him with that in mind is that I'm going to try and weaken this team, uh, which, you know, maybe creates a spot in the National League long-term for me, but also it's, he's a great young player and uh, very talented and perhaps, you know, can be enticed with some, with a large sum of money. So the famous story, maybe not famous, but there's accounts of it you can find sort of later on that he shows up, you know, with a big, basically like $7,500 in cash and shows it to him and says, this is what I'll give you for, you know, three, if you sign for three, three years for me, you know, and so that's a lot of money for, for a young ball player, especially at the time. And so that's the main reason he's sought out is because he's this talented, young, ascended ball player, but he's also on a team that's kind of in disarray and with a lot of dissension on it. And so he becomes a perfect target to, to get because he might be unhappy there. Very interesting. All right. Well, tell me about sort of the, uh, we don't have to go through blow by blow, but I, uh, you're, we mentioned the eight teams that kind of start the league out, but it, yeah. it's pretty, it, it, the, I don't want to say the wheels start falling off fairly quickly, but they kind of do. I mean, Altoona yeah. is like already out by the end of May. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you've got various situations to either replace Altoona with another franchise and some other ones kind of wobbling away and some other new ones come in. Explain to me the dynamic there. We don't have to go specifically one by one, but it sounds like some of these clubs are not able to keep up and or other situations. And then other clubs are quote unquote found to kind of take their places or continue whatever the schedule would be. Explain the dynamic there that's at play or the dynamics. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's kind of one of the most fascinating things about the league. I think when people discuss it, usually they look at this strange configuration of uh, 12 teams, 13 cities and, you know, see what happened. Uh, so the case of Altoona is simply, they didn't have money. They, they had promised that they had enough money to, to last the whole season, even if they lost money. And it turns out by, you know, by the end of May, they are not making money. They're an awful team as well. And so there's this huge kind of uh, uh, competitive imbalance. And so when May comes, Henry Lucas travels to Altoona and basically gives them ultimatum that you either pay your debts and stay in the league, or you know, if you if you don't, you're out. And he's he has no interest in propping them up to try and keep them going. And so he kind of puts them out of the league because they yeah, just they, they can't keep up, but they can't keep up on the field. They can't keep up off the field. And so he quickly reaches out to uh, uh, a business owner in Kansas City and quickly a team is formed there in, in Kansas City. It's the first major league team, uh, so to speak, in Kansas City. Uh, and that team is formed very hastily within about a week, 
comprise almost entirely of Yopleus in the West. And um, at this point in time, each many teams in, in professional baseball had what they're called the reserve teams. So it'd be basically almost like a, a firm team you'd have with some sort of potential prospects. And so Lucas loans out some of those players to the new Kansas City franchise. They join, you know, on June 6th, I think, and they and they end up, you know, playing the whole playing the rest of the season uh, and doing very well financially, even if on the field they were terrible because they had the luxury of playing Sunday games, which was a big deal uh, then. And they're one of the most profitable teams in the league, despite being one of the worst teams of all time. Uh, yeah, and, and one of those teams that were were known as the Unions. Uh, I think yeah. the nickname Cowboys. Cowboys yeah, because you know, like, that shows yeah. up occasionally too derisively. Is like they called the Cowboys because of these all these often West, Western players. And Kansas City at that point is this city on the grow in that it's it's becoming. Um, I think it's up to a hundred thousand people by eighteen eighty four, but it still has this reputation as being kind of the Wild West. So. Yeah, and if you're a Kansas City baseball fan, uh, I inarguably I think was the first, as you mentioned, the first professional baseball team in Kansas yeah. City. So if you're looking for uh, an excuse to uh, uh, whip out a Kansas City Unions uh, uh, eighteen eighty four jersey uh, for an upcoming uh, uh, throwback game, well, there you go. There's there's the reason to do it. Very much so, yeah. And and so from the um, the next team to kind of collapse is, is Philadelphia Keystones, who had started the season initially with high expectations that they would be one of the better teams in the league because they had these established ancient starters from the National Association, but they quickly proved to be one of the worst teams. Uh, and there's just not... They are competing against uh, the Philadelphia Athletics, who'd won the pennant in 1983 while sending a single-season attendance record with, I think, something like 180,000 people. Um, and also the Philadelphia Phillies, who had formed in 1983 and were universally awful, but had improved drastically for 1884. And so that becomes, there's these two teams in the established major leagues, and you have this rival team that isn't good. Uh, and also Philadelphia is a place where there's... Um, tons and tons of baseball going on. It's probably the hub of baseball in the country at that point in time in terms of amateur baseball. So there's dozens and dozens of games every single on, on, on Fridays and Saturdays and things like that. So there's a lot of competition for the entertainment and no one's going to turn out to see an awful team playing against other awful teams in the, in the, in the union association. So, so were the Keystones essentially a, a, I want to say hastily assembled, but a group of those amateurs and then they just basically it, turn pro, so to speak, by, was, by it, being... They were a mix in that they had uh, some amateur like local sand lotters. So some of them turned out quite good. Like Jack Clement became a, a star catcher in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, and he's only 19 at this point and he he joins the club. Uh, and they have another guy, Buster Hoover, who's one of the best players in the league. And he's a 21 year old um, uh, from Philadelphia as well. But then they just balance it out with these kind of aged veterans and the, it just doesn't work. And they just, they put off a terrible product on the field and the, by August, they're sort of $10,000 in debt. The players have been paid their salaries in a few weeks. And so it becomes obvious that they're not going to continue the season uh, because essentially what would typically happen is a team would make it home, complete the homestand, and then they'd fold because going on the road was where they incurred most of their expenses because they basically wouldn't have to pay their own way to go travel to other cities uh, and would not get paid um, anything except for the road guarantee, which was $75 per game. Uh, so if they showed up to a game, they'd get paid $75, but that was all they'd make on the road. And so each game they get 75 bucks, which isn't enough to justify, you know, incurring losses, you know, especially when there's not really hope that they're going to make it back. 
So, so here we go. We've now have, we're now almost in the middle of the season and you've got uh, two teams, not uh, no longer with us. Uh, and uh, one of which has been replaced and it looks like Wilmington, the uh, uh, episode 73 uh, discussed Wilmington quick steps come in to replace the Keystones uh, Nary a week or two later. Yeah. Um, and and they've been this the- sounds like a, this sounds like the beginning of a trend because then we, we see Chicago sort of winnow away and, um, and then Pittsburgh, uh, ever taking over for them, them themselves folding. I mean, um, all the while though, there are some teams doing pretty well in, in particular the St. Louis Maroons yeah. who are kind of just constantly winning regardless of who's been thrown at them to play against. Yeah. And, and the, the situation is kind of shame because in, in July, the, the best pitcher, Billy Taylor, he jumps to the American association. And so then they're left kind of without a pitcher. And that's what induces them to, to track down Tony Sweeney, uh, who's the disgruntled sort of young hotshot from the from Providence in the National League. And so that's sort of what ends up happening. Um, but all the while, they keep winning, even if they don't have a starting pitcher. They, they signed a player named Henry Boyle, uh, who's a minor leaguer who'd never actually pitched before. And they make him into a pitcher, and he turns actually pretty good for them. Uh, and later wins the National League ERA title, but um, he's he signed as kind of this stopgap and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, despite the fact that they let go of their manager, Ted Sullivan, who has a following out with the players, and Fred Dunlap takes over as manager as well. So in addition to being the best player in the league, he also is managing the pennant winners. Um, you know, they keep they keep winning, and it's just there's sort of an unstoppable kind of force by the end of the season. So Chicago Browns folding. Uh, yeah, so Chicago. In Chicago's they case, yeah, they, I mean, they, they get transferred to Pittsburgh, but they, they keep some of the same ownership. And then in September, Pittsburgh falls and just merges with the Baltimore franchise because all along they've all kind of had the same ownership. And so a bunch of the top players on Pittsburgh are, are transferred over to Baltimore. Uh, and so then it becomes like sort of they merge back into like the one franchise. So this is I mean, this is it just goes on and on. So here's the curious part, though, right? So. Based on my memory and and uh, further uh, uh, investigation, um, the Maroons essentially had already clinched what I guess was was a pennant, uh, kind of in the middle by the middle of September. Yet there are still some efforts. Uh, Pittsburgh, obviously formerly Chicago, had then folded shortly thereafter. But there are still efforts to get other teams to kind of fill in, so to speak. Yeah. Sort of the remainder of the game. So the St. Paul Saints and the uh, Milwaukee Brewers, no relations, although perhaps inspiration to the current uh, the, the, the the teams that came after that with those names in, in later decades and in, in other leagues um, uh, are recruited from, the, I guess, the minor league Northwest League to kind of fill in and finish the schedules for whatever remained of the Chicago Pittsburgh dynamic and the Philadelphia slash Wilmington debacle. Um it's it's pretty interesting to see sort of I guess uh, the desire to at least limp along and kind of fill in a, an actual the remainder of the schedule, even though for all intents and purposes it was kind of done for. Yeah, yeah, and that's that sort of fascinating thing is like what, why, why continue like why try and fill up the rest of the schedule and it's it's something well, just well the guy the guy who's who runs the most successful franchise is also the league president, so maybe that's why there, there's part of that. Yeah, and I think there's also what's happening sort of by September is the Northwestern League has collapsed a couple of different times. They've, they folded, they restarted again with few teams and then they folded again. And so by September, there's only about 
three minor three teams in the country outside of the major leagues that are still sort of taking the field and you have milwaukee you have st paul and then there's an independent club called the omaha union pacifics that's also playing and those three teams just play each other repeatedly throughout the month of september and omaha is actually the team that is recruited initially by by lucas to join but for whatever reason that falls through and sort of you end up with st louis and st paul and milwaukee joining and it's essentially for milwaukee it's just they it's a they're enticed because they get to play all of the games at home and so they join because there's really no risk for them they can you know maybe make some extra cash at the end of the season in the final month and then st paul i think is just like just why not the players want to keep playing and you know they're not really given any promises that anything will come of it they won't make any money necessarily but it's just they want to keep playing ball so they they agree to play all the games on the road and they become the only major league team ever to never play a home game all right so by october the season essentially is over and perhaps thankfully uh it, um i'm assuming there's some form of a celebration for st louis is there an actual pennant that gets uh, sewed t- together and, and and flown somewhere. Yeah, I believe the, you can find one of the league meetings where they mentioned like that there's a sort of pool of money that's given to to create a pennant for the club. Um, and interesting enough, like what happens is uh, both St. Louis and Cincinnati, who are probably the two strongest clubs at the end of the year, they play some exhibition games against Louisville uh, of the American Association in October, and they end up splitting those games. And it's, it's interesting because that's the only record we have of, of a union club playing against another major league club is, is these exhibition games with a Louisville sort of. Was it, was it touted as the, I don't know, unification belt, if you will, to use a a boxing analogy of some sort, even though there were three leagues essentially, I mean, as a, more than just an exhibition, so to speak, kind of like a battle of the champs. Yeah, I think, I think it was just uh, I think it was an opportunity to make some extra money at the end of the year. Louisville had finished in second place in the American Association. Got it. On the back of Guy Hako, who had won, I think, 54 games and pitched about 700 innings. Uh, and yeah, they end up, end up playing these games. And sort of it's just like a, it's intended it to be kind of a bit of a like hint at what could be, what could be, how good are we. Um, there'd been some opposition by the American Association to allowing Louisville to play these games, but because the players were no longer technically under contract because it was after the season. They kind of just played them and and sort of the, I think they ended up being one of the games to blow out. And I think uh, St. Louis beat them two to one. And, and it was, I don't know, it's an interesting kind of little footnote that doesn't, I've never seen discussed elsewhere, but it's, yeah, I, I talked a bit about it in the book as well. So. All right. So tell me now the, the end of the season, what sort of happens in the fall and the early winter? Um, number one, is there, an assumption or a belief or a stated, uh, you know, uh, goal of bringing this league back the next year or pretty much, is this pretty much a fait accompli? And then, so, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. So, sorry to interrupt him. Uh, but the, yeah, the, 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 it's, it's hard to post what Henry Lucas motivations were and, and justice Florida and Henry Lucas were both kind of of the same mind in a lot of ways. And they were very close friends. It seemed like, and there's rumors even through like sort of the summer that they're plotting to to um, take down the union association and like use use the resources to try and get into the national league um, by whatever means necessary. And so there's already some cynicism about what their motivations are. But at least publicly, they're putting forth that they're planning to do union association in 1885. 
the makeup of the league would have been different because it would have been entirely comprised of Western clubs um, because they had found that the Eastern clubs, aside from Washington, had all kind of lost money and there wasn't interest in kind of uh, continuing onward uh, with the Union Association. And so they were going to make them as a Western league in, in 1885. And so that's sort of like what they're planning to do. And from that point, you sort of have this sort of dance that's going on where Henry Lucas is saying one thing publicly that the Union Association is going to, you know, go strong in 1885. But meanwhile, he's also negotiating with the National League about possibly joining um, because the Cleveland franchise has undergone a disastrous 1884 season. Cincinnati, the Cincinnati unions had actually poached three of their best players in, in, uh, in August of 1883. And Justice Florida was planning also sort of to overthrow the, the Detroit franchise in, in the National League because they were also the other kind of weak link in the league where they were losing money, there wasn't a lot of local support, and there was rumors that they'd be dropped. And so then the plan for Lucas and Florida was that they would bring the Cincinnati club and the St. Louis club into the National League. So the guy running the league and the most successful franchise is already looking beyond a union association for that how did, when and how do the owners of the other teams get wind of that? And it looks like there was a meeting in January where there were a couple of clubs that actually showed up with the intention, I guess, of a of a of a of a union association going forward for this next season. But oddly, or maybe now your background, your description, uh, not surprisingly, no uh, nobody from St. Louis is showing up at that meeting. Yeah. So so what ends up happening is publicly, Lucas says he's one hundred percent behind the union association foreigner as well. Um, but then when push comes to shove for this January meeting in mid-January, um, which is going to be like kind of the, the first meeting of the new year, set up plans for the 1885 season, neither owner shows up. And so then you're left with like the remaining couple owners, which is um, Ted Sullivan, uh, who is running Kansas City, as well as the Milwaukee ownership group. They are kind of disheveled by, you know, the, the abandonment, but they I think they probably expected it because at the same meeting, they're contacting folks in other locations to, with this idea of forming a new um, Western League. This, the Union Association is dead, but this Western League is going to take the field in 1885 with Kansas City and Milwaukee and a few other teams uh, in the West, like Toledo and Cleveland wound up with a team in that league as well. But he had to also then recognize that the Browns were a pretty strong franchise in 85. They actually uh, wound up winning the first of four consecutive American Association yeah penance right uh but um with the browns already kind of shall we say established i mean isn't that kind of the last thing st louis would need would be yet another now national league team or or maybe st louis was thriving enough as, as a metropolitan area that that could benefit from a rivalry because the thing is like the union association like as a, in general most of the teams didn't drop it well but st louis do very well and they actually like were the most profitable team in the league, like just based on if you look at what they spent and, and what they made, um, they they drew by some estimates up to 180,000 fans. Like, was that as good or better than the American Association? It was, Town it was less than the American Association, but still better than many teams in baseball. And so okay. it was like they they were actually very successful. So there was real uptake. Like the, it didn't really wear out. They, the, Lucas had a lot of respect within St. Louis, like just as an individual. And so, so it sounds like he had some leverage then too, some brand association, some names, some some obviously money behind it, right? So okay, exactly. And and then what happens with the National League is they sort of recognize the union association has been kind of a nuisance, uh, and 
if they can get Lucas in, then maybe the Union Association goes away and it's less of a problem for them going forward. And so they, they start this negotiation with, with Lucas and then also they have to appease because Vandere and, and the Grand Stockings because they have to work on an agreement and, and it ends up being a, a kind of a bit of a complicated mess in that a bunch of the players on Lucas's club have been blacklisted by the National League and American Association. So there's questions of whether they'll even be in baseball in 1885. And then there's also the issue that a big part of St. Louis's success in the Union Association financially was because they could play Sunday contests and that was the thing the National League did not do. And so the basically he's agreeing to join, he comes to this agreement to join the league. He pays some damages to Vondra and then also um, he essentially is agreeing to not play Sunday games and also agreeing that maybe he won't even have most of his roster for the 1885 season. And it, it goes up until April where the players finally get reinstated and they, he has to cobble together this kind of last minute roster with some of the players from the Union Association along with others to, to kind of see play in 1885. So that's, and then obviously he gets his wish, so to speak, by going to the National League the next season. And yeah. um Tell us what happens to the team the next season. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they certainly didn't win the championship in the no, National no. League the next year. And, and, and there had been some sort of speculation that they might be one of the better teams in the league and they'd compete for the pennant based on, you know, the Union Association success. But um, one of the things that happens is Charlie Sweeney, who was the big star pitcher in the 1884 and was one of the top young pitchers in baseball. He's, he's a, a difficult individual and kind of insufferable and develops own problems and he's nowhere near as effective in 1885. Um, Planned to sign Jim McCormack, who had jumped from the Union, so jumped from Cleveland to Cincinnati in the Union Association in 1884, and who by all rights should probably be in the Hall of Fame based on his his record. He uh, he joins Providence at the last minute instead of going to St. Louis, and so they're left without sort of this pitching staff they'd planned. And then they all the players have not been able to play baseball for you know six months, uh, and so they show up rusty. And then it's just yeah, this you know just it's kind of a disaster from the start. They and then fans quickly lose interest because, well, we can go see the championship club in St. Louis or see kind of this mediocre, you know, dissenting little club, uh, you know, that you know, from the Union Association. And so it ends up being just kind of a, a disaster for Lucas. Like on the field, they, they, they stink. And then financially, it just ends up he starts losing a lot of money. He'd already spent a lot of money on the Union Association's adventure, but then his club starts losing money as well. And then ultimately, they moved to Indianapolis for a couple of seasons. And, um, yeah. And then die an untimely death uh, a handful of years uh, later. All right. Well, so let's let's sort of uh, put some uh, some wrapping around this conversation. Sure. But so let me. So given all of that torturous and um, seemingly crazy and and uh, 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 unevenness uh, of of background and history and and the way it all played out, how then does the idea of the Union Association for its I would say barely one season in 1884 of life even become a controversial topic uh, in baseball historian circles around being considered as a major league then for posterity. Cause it would seem on the outside that while it was an interesting challenge, you had two other stable leagues going on around that time and it didn't last past one season yet. There are people in certain circles who argue perhaps yourself included that it should be treated as and considered as a major league by historical standards. 
Yeah, I, I think it's 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 an interesting subject to to post. You can kind of get into the history of sort of when it sort of start appearing in in historical circles as a major league. Um, so I think I believe the first reference to it is it, in that category is in 1922 in, in Ernest Lanigan's Baseball Cyclopedia. And he he lists it alongside the other leagues as a major league. But even earlier than that, you can find Al Spink talks about the, the Union Association in his book, The National Game, which was kind of the first full history of baseball ever written. And that was in 1911. And, um, and so he's treating it with sort of a legitimacy. And even just you can find... Um, in 1910, I think Washington newspapers, they, they, I think the Washington Times, they did a really interesting who's who of baseball and they, they kind of did the first attempt at an encyclopedia just weekly and, and they listed Union Association players amongst, you know, National League Association and American Association players as, you know, kind of as being major league players. And so I think just historically, it's just been treated as a major league. Um, and then I think the other piece to look at is, there's not really another league that kind of did what it did and then also kind of failed the way it failed, but also that both the National League and the American Association sought to try and destroy it. Like they they actively tried to undermine it at every step and they, they purposely made, made rule changes and did different things to try and make sure the Union Association wasn't a success. And if they weren't considered a threat, then it's kind of, they would have done that, but because the Union Association's Put set up shop and said we're going to try and compete with you. You know, I think that that gives us some credibility as a major league. Um, I think, obviously, from a statistical perspective, it's probably the weakest uh, major league aside from maybe some of the, the the early national association seasons. Which again, national association isn't officially recognized as a major league, but I personally consider it one. Um, and and then there's the interesting piece with now the Negro leagues. Uh, joining being given major recognition which I think is wonderful and I think it it adds it I think it makes the point a bit moved about the Union Association being major league it's just been treated as major league historically to stop treating it as such now would just change the historical record in a way that I don't think would be super helpful for anyone but also it's really great that the Negro Leagues are now like Oh, I, yeah, I, I don't think there's any disagree. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know, I, I I couldn't agree with you more on that front. We've had a couple of conversations around that. I, it's interesting, Bill, I mean, you mentioned Bill James and, and the historical abstract and, you know, yeah. obviously one of the greatest contrib- contributors to to the ongoing um, uh, history of the game, right? But he calls out, I mean, I think of the, the I think it was uh, 272 players or so, um, almost 40% of them never played in another major league. Um I think like 26 or 27% did wind up going into uh, other major leagues, but um, you know, for not a, a whole lot of cups of coffee, uh, not no real sustained kind of thing. And, and something like 30% um, of those had longer careers, but their success was uh, minor at that. And I think that's borne out by how many, frankly, or how few, how little, I don't think any, uh, I have to look into the records, went on to sort of eventually uh, be enshrined in, in the baseball hall of fame. Although but that by itself is not necessarily, but it, it, it seems like the collective statistics, I guess, uh, of the players and the diaspora of such um, don't necessarily bode really well, but you are mentioning some unavoidable facts, right? I mean, you're talking about the, you know, a Fred Dunlap, by the way, uh, who arguably was one of the top players in baseball at the time, right? being enough of an attraction to be wooed by um, 
by Lucas to, to play in this new uh, fledgling league. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, if anybody who could should qualify uh, or could be in a conversation about being enshrined in the baseball hall of fame, uh, it would be Fred sure shot Dunlap. But um, I think he's one of those guys that, you know, once he went into the national league and, and beyond um, if you, if you remove his one year of stats from the union association play, uh, he's kind of fair to Midland at best. And maybe perhaps maybe the argument why he's not in the baseball hall of fame. Yeah. So, so it's interesting you mentioned that. So there is actually one, one player in the union association who made the baseball hall of fame. And it's Tommy McCarthy, who is generally considered one of the weakest players in the hall of fame, but he, he debuted with Boston in 1884. And oddly enough, he was one of the worst everyday players in the union association in terms of his statistical record. He was, bad as a pitcher, he was bad as a hitter, bad as a fielder, and yet somehow was able to play that into a major league uh, career and eventually the Hall of Fame. Um, and then you have Jim McCormick and Jack Glasscock, who both joined Cincinnati from Cleveland. They both, I think, have really excellent places for Hall of Fame. And then uh, Fred Dunlap, he, the first half of his career looks like a Hall of Fame career, and then he, he never really reaches the same level of play, but oddly enough, he, he still has this reputation. He's Throughout the 1880s, he's called the king of second basemen, and he's considered the, the gold standard by which all second basemen measured. And he becomes the highest paid player in baseball in the late 1880s. Um, and he's also one of the key members of the 1887 Detroit kind of uh, Wolverines, which is kind of one of the more famous teams of the 19th century. But he starts having injuries, and his career kind of ends up being shortened. So, so he only has about an 11-year career, and, and the second half isn't nearly as strong as the first half. But, yeah, in terms of his peak, I think he has a Hall of Fame kind of like case but you know his career is kind of too short to to merit uh, a hall of fame kind of consideration yeah and look and all of this then just it just kind of devolves into i think maybe what is sort of the specialness i guess of, of the sport of baseball when it comes yeah. to this kind of stuff and again we talked about the longevity and, and it's you know uh fulsome statistical references and 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 uh literary uh obsession by lots of writers um the debate is half uh, half the fun of all of this oh, stuff definitely. Right? i mean and and frankly, that th- those debates, um, you know, and, and nuanced and, and evolved and as new information uh, and books like yourself, yours uh, come into play, uh, there are some reconsiderations of stuff. And arguably, maybe that's why uh, long overdue, uh, I think many would agree, you know, the, a number of the Negro leagues that were, quote unquote, professional were are now deemed to be as such by uh, organized baseball's uh, official ranks and stuff. So, you know, in many respects, this is still, even though this happened way back in the 1880s, right. This is still very much a, 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 a vibrant part of the, the fabric of the game. And, you know, may, maybe there are further discussions and discourses and, and new uh, pieces of information that could sway or, or further add to uh, the debate, both positively or negatively, or, or, at least rearranging sort of the, the framing as we, you know, as we supposedly uh, mature and evolve uh, over time. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I think it's, it's an interesting conversation to have. And that's the other part of the appeal of baseball history. And there's that discussion component to it. And, and again, it, it, it's regardless of whether it's a major league or not a major league or whether how it matched up statistically, it's still just part of this, this larger story. And it's, you know, again, it, it's sort of if somebody's been documented as such for, you know, hundred years, then it's worth at least, you know, sort of keeping in the conversation or keeping it as part of 
you know, that historical fabric. I, I don't know. So I, I find it, yeah, I find the discussion very fascinating, but it's, yeah, there's a lot though to unpack and discover. And I think that with the advent of sort of online resources, because that's essentially how we could write this book was, you know, through newspapers.com and things like that. Like there's just so many more things that could be uncovered as, as people kind of dig and start asking questions and go down different rabbit holes. And I think there's just incredible stories waiting to be told. No, and look, I think also too a lot of the 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 the, uh, the teams that exist today, right, can can either directly or, or or indirectly trace their origins to things like this, right? We talked about Kansas City, right? This was the first professional baseball team in Kansas City, you know. And, well, and and oddly enough, one of one of the weird tangents I found was if if you look at Milwaukee in the Union of Associated Franchise, in eighteen eighty five they see play with the same ownership group, and then eighteen eighty six they joined. Um, uh, the Western Association with the same owners, and those owners sort of last until 1901 when when the team joins the American League, and then so from there you have this this continuity. They don't go to St. Louis, and then St. Louis goes to Baltimore. So you can, if you just look at the ownership groups that were in charge of the club, like it, there's a continuity there that sort of connects all the way to modern day. I thought that was really fascinating. All right, my last question is this nickname that I've seen here and there around this league. Called the Onion League. Uh, any knowledge or background as to why that was the nickname for this league for those who followed it at the time? So, contemporarily, I, I wasn't able to find sort of any references to it being called the Onion League. I found a couple references later on in sort of historical look backs of the league where it's sort of derisively called the Onion League and said that's what they called it, but it's it's generally not. Um, generally not like a, a term in, in widespread use in 1884. I, I wasn't able to find any contemporary searches that said we're calling it the Onion League or whatever. There is tons of derisive uh, coverage of the league in various places, particularly in Cincinnati, where O.P. Kaler was the head of the, the Cincinnati um, Commercial Tribune uh, sports pages, and the Cincinnati unions were actually owned in part by the Cincinnati Choir, and so the coverage of the league is vastly different in each and and the 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 coverage in the tribune is just incredibly cynical and incredibly funny but it's just it's just some of the most harshest things you could ever read about um something that's just it's really funny but then this is any quite it's very positive and and you know uplifting about you know the the status of the league and, and where it's going and that sort of thing so so you're saying both derisive and not contemporaneous meaning it was sort of a a, 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 a characterization after the fact yeah, that's that's my understanding. I, I found I found a reference, I think, possibly in in the encyclopedia the by Ernest Lanigan, where it's called the Onion League. I believe that's where I had seen it. But at at the time, it, just looking through, you know, doing keyword searches in 1884 newspapers, there's no one really calling it the Onion League or anything like that. But there is plenty of negative commentary about it. No, and I'm sure it was probably either in quotes uh, as referenced or maybe assumed to be in quotes as a either satirical or, or, or worse. Yeah, and there's certainly possibly colloquially people were calling it that, but it just didn't end up in the newspapers that I was looking at. So. All right, so there we go. We're breaking news now. Uh, hundreds of years later, friends, uh, we talk about uh, the Onion League. Was it really uh, the uh, an actual nickname for uh, the Union Association of, <laughs> of 1883? I mean, you know, um, but that's kind of why we do this stuff. This is um, 1884. This is why this is... Um, um, fun stuff for us. Um, all right. So thank you for regaling us with this. Uh, tell us about the book. Tell us about 
promotion and all that kind of stuff. Tell us uh, what could come from this. Are there any stories that you think could be spun out from and, and maybe what other stuff you might be working on? Are you done with old time baseball? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't think I would be done with old time baseball, but yeah, the, the book is uh, slated to come out, I believe in the summer. There's still, um, the, 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 the final delivery date hasn't been established yet, but, um, yeah, it's called uh, baseball's union association, the short, strange life of a 19th century major league. And it's coming out on, uh, with, um, uh, publishing, uh, and so yeah, it'll be available booksellers everywhere come the summer. I talk about old baseball sometimes on my Twitter, uh, handle, which is at uh, just underscore McKinney. Um, and yeah, I'll be promoting the book and be sure to let people know when it's out officially. Uh, but it's available for the creator now on, on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and the Foreland page as well. So uh, and at least I'm hoping there'll be also an ebook coming out of it as well. Uh, and then, yeah, other than that, I'm, I'm continuing my baseball research. I have some ideas for the next book, but it's a little bit in flux right now. I'm kind of fascinated still by some of the oddball characters in the in the that filled filled baseball in the 1890s and 1880s and such and um, yeah just doing my research trying to and un- find some of the strange stories and strange characters to uh, yeah and, and it seems like they're full of strange strange characters for sure yeah, you could you the, could probably yeah you could you could uh, with the help of a more of a fictional maybe writer you can clearly try to uh, I think these are ripe with. Um, uh, you know, just uh, f- stories that could be, you know, historically rooted, right? About, uh, which I think is, you know, uh, very uh, much conjoined with uh, the the um, fitful sort of evolution of baseball as a professional endeavor, yeah, um, right? Uh, whether it's uh, boozing or or stealing or or uh, uh, just all kinds of other sort of stories. One, I guess one last sort of question. I hinted at it earlier. Um, is there, uh, do we know of an existence of an actual pennant from the Maroons? Um, uh, and if so, maybe where it's domiciled and maybe frankly, is there anybody who could credibly claim that for historical or frankly, shall we say promotional purposes? I'm guessing maybe the Cardinals could. Yeah. Squinting hard and saying it's part of our, St. Louis baseball culture. There, there's sort of that. You could also argue because um, St. Louis, when they joined the National League, uh, they last a couple seasons, they sold to Indianapolis and the Indianapolis team eventually gets folded in uh, to the New York Giants franchise. So so that lineage sort of like you could make a very tenuous case that that's um, that that's, you know, who belongs to it's New York Giants and now it's San Francisco Giants, I guess. Uh, but yeah, in terms of the existence of that, there's a, a, a very little actual contemporary kind of like memorabilia and things like that from the Union Association. There's a few scorecards that exist. There's two team photos, uh, one of the Boston Unions and one of the Washington Nationals. And then there's a, a, a contract and some letters and stuff uh, that were written by uh, one of the team owners to, to a player. And, and that's about it. There's really not anything because I think once once the league went under, the teams lost money. They didn't have any wherewithal to keep these records, and and so it just ends up being there's just hardly any documentary evidence of the league and its existence, other than just what you have in the newspapers. So unfortunately, we don't know where the St. Louis Maroons uh, eighteen eighty four Union Association pennant ended up. 
Uh, and uh, that's right there. seems like it's uh, if you're if you're running a major league baseball franchise, or you're in St. Louis or maybe even if you want to talk about the San, San Francisco Giants in the tenuous case. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's all about big money now and stadiums and building stuff around stadiums and, and all, of, you know, the, but to me, this is and I'm, I'm sure to you, uh, you know, this is important stuff. And, yeah. you know, um, somebody, frankly, could and should lay claim to this um, and, and incorporate it as part of the overall fabric, you know, and explain it, of course, of, of baseball's history. And um, one wonders, I, I'm assuming it's not discoverable or perhaps not even around anymore, but you, one could make the argument that one could, shall we say, recreate that pennant and incorporate yeah. it into one's history. And, you know, maybe Cardinal fans might want to start thinking about doing that because it's, yeah. it's the most logical place to do well, that. Yeah. I think it'd be wonderful. Yeah. If there's, you know, like some sort of uh, more attempts to kind of like contextualize the league, understand it, appreciate it, uh, dissect it, you know, whatever you want to do with it. And so I think, you know, just that's that's what I my goal of the book is hopefully it opens up conversations that people will then want to <laughs> debate and go and unpack some of the stuff people go to and find new ways to tell the story. All right. I mean, what other podcast out there is going to be, you know, informing you about the existence of something known as the Cincinnati Outlaw Reds, right? Or the Baltimore Monumentals. I mean, probably one of the better names in baseball history. Um, you know, but you St. Louis uh, Cardinal fans uh, may want to do a little research and uh, look up this team called the St. Louis Maroons that won the one and only Union Association Championship back in 1884. Because if you squint hard enough, you'll recognize that uh, the uh, Maroons are very much part of the fabric of St. Louis professional baseball and uh, and arguably uh, a reason for the Cardinals' existence today. And um, we urge you to pre-order a copy of this book by Justin. Again, it's called Baseball's Union Association, The Short, Strange Life of a 19th Century Major League. It is published by our friends at McFarland. Uh, it's coming out in November, depending on when you're listening to this. But it is available for pre-order despite when you're listening to this. You can find it wherever good books are found. But of course, the place we love you to do it most often is from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. It's number 264 with Justin McKinney. And uh, you'll find a convenient link to that. And we get a couple of shekels of referral love. We appreciate that. Uh, you can follow Justin uh, on uh, medium.com. Uh, medium.com and uh, his uh, site there is Baseball Obscura. Uh, you could also follow Justin uh, on Twitter at just, J-U-S-T underscore McKinney, M-C-K-I-N-N-E-Y. Uh, you can follow us, should you like to do that. Uh, of course, we're on social media like Twitter. You'll find us there at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Facebook, believe it or not, also at Good Seats Still Available. You can uh, find us online on our website again at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Every single stinking episode we've ever done will be there for you to enjoy, find, revel in, repeat, listen to, share with whomever, whatever you want to do with them. Of course, the best way 
to make sure that you don't miss out on an episode is to put us in your feeds. We're available wherever podcasts are found. There's no excuse not to find us and follow us and subscribe to us. So please do. Email. Yes, you can send us some of that too. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Pretty simple. And uh, we have an email weekly newsletter or a weekly email newsletter, whichever you prefer. Uh, They're both available for you there on the website. Just tool around. You'll find it. And um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We appreciate it. Jerry Payne, you know uh, what you uh, do for us every week. And uh, our great listeners do too. And uh, hopefully uh, they've enjoyed another uh, fun-filled episode this week and more to come in the weeks to come. we got some big names coming up, some names you actually might have heard of, players, former coaches, all that stuff. Coming down the pike, you never know what you're going to hear on this episode or the next episode or the episode after that. But we appreciate you listening to as many as you can and the ones that intrigue you and even maybe the ones that don't. Uh, Just give a listen. You never know. Uh, Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We love you for doing so and uh, take care. Bye-bye.